This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Is that better? Yeah. All right. Fear, anxiety and the fear of the Lord. Here we go. If uh, you read the blurb, I mentioned how there's this curious line in the hymn we we probably all know, Amazing Grace, that goes like this. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." It seems to be saying, expressing two maybe contradictory outworkings of grace. And so what we're going to do tonight is take a a closer look at this paradox and uh, and trying to find, examine what is fear? What is anxiety? What is the fear of the Lord or the fear of God? How do these compare? How do these contrast? And hopefully with that, by the end, we're going to see that the, um, the foundation for all our fears relieved is actually the first fear, the fear, the grace that taught my heart to fear. That's that's where we're going to hopefully end up. Because um, we'll, as we'll see, this first fear, the fear or the grace that taught my heart to fear, the fear of God, is a different kind of fear. Here's the overall structure: how the night's going to go. It's about an hour lecture and. The first part, part one, is about the extent, the experience, descriptions, definitions of fear. That's the bigger part. And there there will be some comparing and contrasting even there. It was hard to to divide this up exactly in in this manner. But part two will be significant similarities and differences. And really just drawing out more of what we were talking about in part one. So first, part one. The extent, the experience, descriptions of fear. So, as Labrie workers, we we try to talk on things that are relevant. And sometimes we wonder, you know, is this going to be relevant? Is this going to be where culture is at, where people are at? I'm pretty confident this one is relevant to our day. We're living in a, a pretty fearful time for a while. We're living in this pandemic, and we're afraid of what it might take away from us, uh, might take away our job or our social life or our very life or someone we know. There's the, the fear that comes with all the, the hatred and the, um, the violence we're seeing with racism and the, the counterparts to that sometimes in the riots. That's, that's fearful, I think, for a lot of us. And then there's the, the political polarization that's going on right now, especially with the elections coming up. The, the political arena is charged. It's, it's a scary place to enter, I think, for a lot of us. 
to know what, if I say something, what's going to happen? <laughs> Am I going to be attacked? Am I going to have friends? Uh, what's going to happen? So, um, with that though, there's also the, the marketing, there's the media, there's the politicians who prey on our fears and use that to their advantage. Cause people know if you can make people afraid and think that somehow you will relieve that fear, uh, then you can get their money or their vote. And so I think you maybe have seen this in the political strategies. It's, it's typical to say, look at this scary, scary thing. That's a reality. And look how the other party or the other candidate is the reason for this scary thing. And guess what? If you vote for me, I will deliver you <laughs> from that fear that I just created in you. And I think this happens on both sides. I think we can see as, uh, as there's debates, as there's banter, this is what happens a lot of the times. And this is something to be aware of, this fear-mongering uh, that is present. And we need to recognize and resist and, and hopefully never be part of. And not far behind fear typically is, uh, is depression and anger. So when your fears are not relieved for a long time, that gets depressing. That gets maddening. And I think, I think we're seeing a lot of this in the homes, in domestic life, and in public life. And when that happens, people tend to, to turn to things that range from just unhelpful, unhealthy, to things that are outright destructive and evil. And I think we're seeing that as well. So, yeah, we live in a fearful time. We're, we're just a fearful people, it seems. <laughs> Both globally and here, and maybe especially in the U.S. Even apart from a pandemic and what's going on with racism and riots and in politics, even before all that. And maybe that the U.S. experiences more fear than other nations. There's a guy, um, a French so, uh, political scientist, Dominique Moisy. I'm not sure if that's exactly how you pronounce his last name, but he wrote a book almost, a, little, a little over than 10 years ago called The Geopolitics of Emotion, How Cultures of Fear, Humiliation, and Hope Are Reshaping the World. And in it, he argues that the West which we would definitely be included, maybe the biggest example of the U.S., um, we're dominated by fear, a lack of confidence, or confidence that's crumbling. You know, we, we've been the superpower, but can we hold that position for very much longer? Um, and then he argues how maybe the Arab world is more dominated by humiliation, if you think of their history. And then if you think of the Asian world, it's gaining confidence, because, hey, maybe... Maybe Asia, uh, somewhere in there, could be the new superpower. Uh, he might be overgeneralizing, he probably is, but I think for him to even just consider what, what's a dominant emotion in a geography, and to try and recognize that and relate to that and what that might mean and how we should relate to each other in light of that, I think it's a, um, an interesting approach. Either way, the, de the, the U.S. has... One of the highest rates in the world of anxiety disorders, and it, um, anxiety disorders are the highest uh, disorders, mental disorders, in, in the U.S. So this is uh, according to 
the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. They say anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the U.S., affecting 40 million adults in the United States, ages 18 and older, or 18.1% of the population every year. So that's just disorders, of course. That's not just everyday, ordinary anxiety that people are going through. And they say in here, actually, in their statistics, women are affected by a lot of this anxiety twice as much as men. So women are affected by generalized anxiety disorder twice as much uh, as men, as well as panic disorder. A lot of people are complaining about anxiety in the U.S. and looking for help. Why is this? Why are we so anxious? an important question to ask. Now, a lot of people raise questions about the line between an anxiety disorder and just normal everyday anxiety. Where is that line? And a lot of people say that's fuzzy, or if you draw a line, it's arbitrary. Um, and a lot of people argue the DSM, which is basically the Bible of psychiatry, has made the definition for an anxiety disorder so broad Most people could fit into it on most days. <laughs> um, and what that does is it makes it very easy for a psychiatrist to prescribe medication to almost anybody. So that's part of the critique. Certainly there's a legitimate place for medication. I'm not arguing against that. But there is a lot. there are a lot of people who want to make a lot of money off of medication. And it's, it's pretty obvious the pharmaceutical company... A lot of it is about money. It's not always about health. And it's not always for our benefit. But yeah, medication, it can take the edge off of our anxiety. That's one of the blessings of, um, of medication. It can take the edge off enough so we can ask ourselves, well, why am I so anxious? Because one of the problems with anxiety is you are not able to think about why you're anxious. You're not able to think clearly and deeply about what's going on. What's the reason for this? And how might I address it? How might I deal with it? How might I be healed from it or work through it? <clears throat> But yeah, many times our, the reasons for our anxiety are buried deep within us. They're so scary to us, we hide them from ourselves. We suppress them. And so they get really hard uh, to find. Sometimes it takes someone else to walk with us. And of course, with Jesus, we never have to be afraid of what's in our subconscious. His love is always bigger and stronger than what's, what's down there and what might be scary to us. But anxiety, it has all kinds of causes. It's not like you can point to one thing and say, this is always why someone is fearing or this is why someone is anxious. There can be many, many reasons from brain damage to something traumatic in your past. You've been abandoned or abused. You've been through a war. These things can produce anxiety in you. Or maybe you've just learned how to interpret life in a fearful way from your parents or from someone else significant in your life. Or maybe you're just becoming more and more aware of the real tragedy and death and brokenness in the world. You're really confronted with that, and it's scary. 
And it really is. Or maybe I'm just, yeah, confronted with my own death. And a lot of times therapists and psychologists don't know how to deal with that because they don't necessarily have an answer for death, except that we don't have any control over it. Or maybe I'm just putting my hope in something, my ultimate hope, in something that is shaky. And therefore, understandably, I'm shaky. So if my ultimate hope is in my own abilities, then I'm understandably an insecure person. Understandably so. There's only one thing that's unshakable. That's the kingdom, the coming kingdom. We're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's a great hope. But yeah, maybe I'm being confronted with my own sin, my own rebellion towards God. Maybe I'm being confronted with the fact that I'm running from God. And that's making me anxious. And it should. (laughs) It should make you anxious. Because that's not a good place to be. That is a dangerous place to be. Of course, we can always just turn around and run to God, who offers himself to us as the greatest refuge there is. But fear and anxiety, they're they're part of the, the air we breathe And whether we're talking about anxiety disorders or just everyday kind of anxieties, uh, the modern world, with all of its knowledge, with all of its safe-insuring technologies, has not become a less fearful world. If anything, it might seem that we are more fearful than ever with all that we have, with the longer lives that we live, the safer understandings of the world that we have or, or how to be safe just seem to be a fearful people. So yeah, why is that? Why are we so anxious? Well, I think no wonder the most repeated command of scripture is this, do not fear. (laughs) Do not be afraid. That is the most repeated command in the Bible from beginning to end. And we need to, to hear the kindness of that command. God knowing how much we're afraid, how fearful we are, how much we're shaking in our boots, and how much he says that to us. And we need to hear all the reasons behind this command. It doesn't just come empty by itself. It comes with the whole Bible. (laughs) So to really know why we don't need to be afraid, we really need to get familiar with the Bible. We need to let the, the Bible teach us again how to not fear and how to hope. So, why are we so anxious? I think the, our understanding of fear and anxiety, it's going to be as deep and as broad as our understanding of what it means to be a human being. I think that's really important to understand. You're going to understand your anxiety to the extent that you know what it means to be a person in all of our fullness, in all of our wholeness. So as we get more and more secular in our age and more and more materialistic and God is eclipsed, then how we imagine anxiety, why we think it is happening becomes more and more secular and becomes more and more limited to what's happening to us materially, what's happening to us on a human to human level, what's happening to us on a chemical to neurological level. And that's, those are all important. Those are things we need to pay attention to. But it could be that there's other things going on. 
uh, that are causing our anxiety. There could be something going on the human to God level that is very important that we need to pay attention to. So when we're anxious, maybe our anxiety is telling us something is wrong on that level that we need to pay attention to. So we shouldn't just try to get rid of our anxiety because it's uncomfortable, just like we shouldn't get rid of boredom because it's uncomfortable. Why are we bored? What's the reason? Why are we anxious? What's going on? So we need to think as holistically as possible and not just look for the materialistic or the relational possible causes, but also the spiritual causes. So let's get to what exactly is fear? If we could describe it as succinctly as we could, you know, what causes glutamate in your brain to start this chemical reaction that starts you breathing more heavily, heart, your heart rate's going more readily, you're, you're sweating more, amongst other things. What causes this volcanic, this volcano of panic juice to come up into the rest of us? <laughs> I was watching this documentary and this guy from Canada described his anxiety like that. This volcano of panic juice that comes up into the rest of him. <laughs> and I think that's a, yeah, a great description of how it feels. But what is that? Why is that happening? Well, it happens when you're just anticipating something terrible. So this isn't some... Uh, hugely revealing definition, but this is basically what anxiety is. When we, um, when fear is happening in our mind and in our body, we are anticipating something terrible that is coming. So, to take a an example where something threatening is coming in and it's too big for us to handle, that's what we're feeling, and there's no one there to help us. We're all alone. So you can imagine you're on the beach. And a few miles out, what do you see? A tsunami. It's coming for you. And you know it's going to be terrible. And you know it's going to be too much for you. And so, of course, if you're normal, you're going to start to fear. And as it gets closer, you're going to start to panic. And at some point, you've started to run. And so that shows also that there's different degrees of fear. And... um, You can have fear just being a little nervous, like, you know, starting this lecture, I was a little nervous. And then as things started messing up, I got a little more nervous and started amping up. The degree was getting higher and higher. You can think about when you're taking that test, that's really important. And you're sweating and you're thinking, oh man, am I going to, am I going to pass to, yeah, the panic of a tsunami coming to the terror or the horror of thinking someone's going to physically torture you. You can see there's a spectrum with anxiety. And there's different triggers to anxiety from darkness to loss, just loss of visibility to heights and flying. So heights, I got a fear of heights. Uh, it's not paralyzing, but like even now I'm just thinking about it and my hands start to sweat. <laughs> and it, it's pretty hard being a firefighter. I'm an on-call firefighter, and so, you know, you got to climb ladders and stuff, and that gets pretty hard. So i got to just push through some fear sometimes. It's, it, it makes it a little difficult. Not impossible, but uh, that's a trigger, a trigger of fear for me. Uh, 
Being in social settings is a trigger of fear for a lot of people. Being rejected socially. Snakes, spiders, mice, death and dying. Woody Allen would often, would often say, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> and, uh, and some people are more afraid of public speaking than dying. And, and Seinfeld has a bit on this. I don't know if you've seen it. But he's talking about how at a funeral that means that these people are more would rather be the guy in the coffin than the guy giving the eulogy. <laughs> and uh, I, I can somewhat relate, at least, to when I was younger. When I was younger, I was extremely shy. And I wouldn't look people in the eyes. I wouldn't talk to them. Large groups really freaked me out, especially if I had to perform or speak. That would be terrible. I would get all red, sweaty. My ears would turn red. And... Maybe they're red now <laughs> from earlier. Uh, but yeah, it was terrible. I, maybe I didn't want to be the guy in the coffin, but pretty close <laughs> at that time. And ironically, now my job is talking in front of people <laughs> all the time. So sometimes, yeah, we get to work through our fears and overcome them. But <clears throat> we have different fears, different uh, triggers for our fears, and different types uh, of fear that relate to the different degrees. So, for example, there's healthy fear and then unhealthy fear. So unhealthy fear is typically this extreme fear, right? This fear that cripples us, that diminishes our lives, that steals our joy, that can make us mean and stingy towards each other. Um, It keeps us from functioning normally, it keeps us from just taking normal risks in everyday life. It can just make us obsessed with being safe. We're never safe enough. Um, and that's, that's painful. That's terrible. And, uh, and it's really bad as a Christian because typically that means you're not able to be as generous to people as you want to be sometimes. You're not able to practice hospitality because you're so afraid of all the risks that might mean for you. And then, as I said, yeah, what's, um, sorry, I'm jumping out there. Uh, what's hard again is when you are really overwhelmed with fear, you're just not in a state of mind to deal with it. You just, uh, you don't have the mental capacity to dig deep and to get into what's going on. And that is why sometimes medication can help there and can help take the edge off so you can, you can do something like that. <clears throat> So, yeah, there's unhealthy fear, and then there's healthy fear. That is important. That keeps us alert to danger, to helps us, helps us focus on what is important, and helps us from being too reckless. So we can want to be too safe. We can also be too reckless, and healthy fear helps us to not do that. So imagine what it would be like if you were absolutely fearless. Do you think you would ever want that? Well, there's this lady, she goes by the name, or she's referred to as SM. I think it was a scientific community. There's some reason behind it. I'm not sure what it is. But uh, this lady had brain damage early on in her life that affected the part of her brain that allows you to think or to feel and experience fear. I was damaged, so she 
almost feels absolutely no fear. And uh, what this means is, well, there's a lot of things it means. Is her social distancing is uh, non-existent. So personal space, you know, it's not just face to face. She can be nose to nose and think there's nothing wrong with it. She can watch a horror movie and just laugh at it. It's not scary to her at all. She has to be told not to pick up snakes that are poisonous and tarantulas. And she's found herself in many numerous dangerous situations because she just doesn't know what fear is. Um, so there's a healthy fear. A healthy fear, a gift of God in our brains that teaches us, don't go over that cliff. <laughs> it's dangerous. Stay away. So yeah, there's appropriate fear. Fear when we fear the right things in the right degree and the right way with the right response. This is a good part of our life. This helps us to make good decisions. It helps us to leave, live good, full lives. And when we don't fear the right things in the right way, um, with the right response, we're in unhealthy fear. And then, yeah, that's when we could benefit from sometimes professional therapy from a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a counselor who's trained to deal with abnormal anxiety and uh abnormal feel, anxiety disorders, when when these things keep us from just functioning normally. So their goal, their training is to get us to at least the level of functionality, if not mental health, which are good things, great things we can be thankful for when we have. And uh, But should that ever be our ultimate goal? Just mental health, health in general. Should that ever be what we're after, what it's all about? Because you hear this. I, this is Ben's mantra a lot of the time when everything is couched in, well, yeah, you should pray because guess what we found out? It's good for you. It's healthy for you. <laughs> and uh, it's just a very limited view of what it means to live, <clears throat> what life is about. I think as a Christian, health, safety, these are relative goals, good things to, to aim for, but they should never be our ultimate goal. That our ultimate goal should be to fear God. To fear God as we love God and love our neighbor. So that brings us to two other different kinds of fear. So there's healthy fear, unhealthy fear. There's godly and ungodly fear. And this is not typically something you would deal with, say, in therapy with a professional psychiatrist or a psychologist. This is, uh, this is something you might deal with with, say, a minister or a labri worker or just a Christian friend. So ungodly fear is basically when we are fearing something or someone more than God. We're revering them, counting them as more significant than God. This basically means we're in idolatry. We're worshiping something created and we're not worshiping the creator. And ungodly fear, idolatry always leads to sin. And godly fear, the fear of God, keeps us from idolatry and sin. They're, they're contrasts. <clears throat> and more than that, godly fear leads us to loving our neighbor. So if there's a God-fearing person in the Bible... Well, you know, for one, they're rightly related to God. They're rightly devoted to God. But you also know 
They are respecting the people around them. They are treating people appropriately. That's what you can have confidence in a God fear because they respect both God and people. They have a, a concern, a care, and even a love uh, that goes together. <clears throat> and so, yeah, the fear, the godly fear and the godly and the ungodly fear uh, can, is, is described in Proverbs as the fear of man and the fear of God. So the fear of man is a snare. But whoever entrusts in the Lord is safe. So the fear of man is really caring more about what people think and do than about what God thinks and does. That's the fear of man. And that's a snare. And that's idolatry. But the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. That one may turn away from the sins, the snares of death. So the fear of God enables you to not fear man. Uh, that's, that's the blessing of the fear of the Lord. It's just one of the many blessings. <clears throat> now, when you hear the phrase, the fear of God or the fear of the Lord, don't just think fear plus God. Just like if you hear the word butterfly, you don't just think of butter and fly, right? <laughs> you don't take a stick of butter and stick it to a fly and think you have a butterfly, right? Those two words coming together make a new compound word with new meaning. The same thing with the fear of God. You don't just stick fear to God and think you now have and understand the fear of God. When those words come together, they have a new meaning. It's a different kind of fear that's being described. And I'll prove it to you. <laughs> this is uh, from the Old Testament. I'll give you an Old Testament passage and a new so this is from the book of, of Exodus. This is at Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments have just been given. And this is what's happening. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us. We will listen, but do not let God to speak to us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. <laughs> Don't fear, because God is wanting you to fear him. It's the same root word in Hebrew. One's in verb form, one's in a noun form. But it's the same word. Showing here fear and the fear of God can't mean the exact same thing. <clears throat> Here's another passage from the New Testament. Oh, Exodus 20, 18 to 20. Here's another passage from the New Testament. This is from Jesus. This is what he says. He's giving some instructions. And he says this. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. 
You are of more value than many sparrows. Fear him, fear not. See, those can't be the exact same thing. Unless Jesus is contradicting himself here. But rather, fear not in the fear of the Lord. Because of the fear of the Lord. So yeah, first consider what can mere humans do to you compared to what God can do to you in this age and in the next. It would be wise to consider that, to reflect on that, to respond appropriately to that, <laughs> live in light of that. Uh, that's what Jesus is saying in some ways. But then he says at the same time, be confident in God's eternal goodness and care. He cares even for the sparrow that falls, even for every hair on your head. So godly fear and godly confidence go together right here and throughout the Bible. Throughout the Bible, you have the commands to fear God and then the command to fear not. That's all the way through the Bible from beginning to end, side by side, uh, not canceling each other out. <clears throat> so when these words come together... In this new phrase, um, fear God or the fear of God, they create a new meaning. And basically it's a catchphrase, it's a saying for true religion, true spirituality. It's about giving God what God deserves. So giving God the attention, the awe, the respect, and the honor, first and foremost, that he deserves and that should lead you to give him also trust, obedience, love, on and on and on. Because again, the fear of God is a catchphrase for your whole spiritual life with God. That's how it was used in the Old Testament. <clears throat> and there's a lot of things we will get, I'm going to highlight, that we receive, that we're blessed with, that we don't deserve in the fear of God. But we fear God mostly because this is what he deserves. This is what he God deserves to be feared. Giving God the fear he deserves. It's about worshiping him and not the gifts he gives us and not the things that are that are going to favor us. But about him. It's giving him the attention. <clears throat> and which also means not just giving God but therefore also giving his works, his words, his ways, the awe, the respect, the honor, the love that they deserve. So you tremble. Someone who fears God trembles at his word, is listening to what he's saying, and responds appropriately. That's very common. That's common. Fear God and obey his commandments, as the end of Ecclesiastes says. For this is wholeness. This is the whole person. This is fullness for humanity. That's, uh, that's the blessing we get. But first and foremost, it's for God. It's what he deserves. Now, <clears throat> a verse that people bring up many times to, to say we, we no longer need the fear of God, that's kind of Old Testament religion. Now we're into New Testament religion is 1 John 4, 8 which says this, there is no fear in love, 
But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. But notice here what's being mentioned. Fear, period. The fear of punishment. That's, those are different kinds of fear than the fear of God. The fear of God is not mentioned here. The fear of the Lord. So if, if God's love casts out the fear of the Lord, then a lot of Paul's letters need to be exercised. <laughs> because Paul talked about, promoted, assumed the fear of God was a thing we're supposed to do. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who's at work in you. That's, uh, we're not moving on from the fear of God. It's there all the way through the Bible, on into, into Revelation. <clears throat> so now, even though the, the fear of God is this catchphrase that expresses a different kind of fear, it's not totally disconnected from fear. So there are similarities. So let's look at some of those. Uh, between fear, anxiety, and the fear of the Lord, or the fear of God. <clears throat> so with all of these, there is an attentiveness. Something fearful gets your attention. Right? When you're afraid. If you're walking through the forest, and in your view, there's a, this tree, and on the, the lower branch, there's this beautiful bird. Maybe it's a rare bird. And then also, what you see crawling down the tree is this tarantula coming towards you. Where does your attention go? To the tarantula, right? To what's fearful. Unless you're Ben, yeah, and <laughs> you're looking at the bird still, you're like, who cares about the tarantula? Um, now, say you got the same view, there's this bird on a lower branch, there's a tarantula crawling down, and there's a crouching tiger in the bush. Now where's your attention going to go? To the crouching tiger, right? To, the, to what's most fearful. That's typically where our attention goes. To whatever is most fearful. <clears throat> um, and that's a gift, right? That's a gift that God has given us to help pay attention to what's dangerous, what's important. And this relates to God too, the fear of God. Ellen Davis describes the fear of God as a lively attention to God. So the, the fear of God, if God is the most fearful, then he deserves the most attention. He's not fearful in a bad way. There, there's not a hint of evil with God. He's fearful in a good way. We tremble at his goodness. Or we should. So there's this attentiveness to fear, an intense attentiveness, right? This is more important than anything else right now. This is where our attention should be. Something is overwhelming us. And, uh, and that's similar in all these fears. <clears throat> and then when this happens, yeah, our heart starts to beat faster, maybe. We start to breathe faster. We start to sweat, tremble, maybe. We get this adrenaline rush, maybe. And so that's why, yeah, a little dose of fear can be good for productivity. It can wake you up. It can make you productive at work. So they, there's studies that show, you know, it's helpful to have a little fear at work in your company so that people aren't lazy. <laughs> um, too much fear can be paralyzing and counterproductive. 
And the right amount of fear can be exhilarating, right? So like being a firefighter going into a building that's on fire. So with the right equipment, the right training, the right experience, the right focus, that can be fearful and joyful at the same time, this blend of of the two. And so can the fear of the Lord be this blending of of fear and joy going on. And I struggled whether to to put this in the, the similarities or the differences, because I think for a lot of us, we don't normally experience joy with fear. Usually our fears are stealing our joy. Um, but for some of us, some of the times, we've experienced them together. We experience what uh, William Faber wrote in his hymn, The Fear of God. A special joy is in all love for objects we revere. Thus, joy in God will always be proportioned to our fear. You see that? He, um, he gets that the fear of the Lord is actually the foundation for our fullest joy in God. So yeah, to be confronted with God's almighty power, his eternal nature, his absolute holiness, that's a terrifying thing. That should make you tremble. If it doesn't, we don't get it. That's like Isaiah in in his vision of God in the temple, and he's like, woe is me. I'm done. It's over. But then when we get that reassurance of God's goodness and his mercy, that can be a joyful fear. It can be a bliss, the greatest bliss. So the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, is not a description of joyless religion of terror. It's about a religion that trembles with joy at the goodness of it all. That's what the fear of the Lord is supposed to be about. So here's a passage from Jeremiah 33. Here Israel is being told what God is going to do for and with Jerusalem. He says this, And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. And they shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. And they tremble. There's fear and trembling at the goodness of what God is doing with Israel. You see that. <clears throat> I love this one. Psalm 2.9. Serve or worship the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. I don't think people normally associate joy with the fear of the Lord. Usually they would think it's the opposite. It's about trembling with joy at the goodness of it all. About who God is, what he's going to do, what he's done. Now in the, in the Old Testament, when the, when the Old Testament was being written, the fear of God or the, um, The fear of God was an expression or the idea of what true religion was. This wasn't unique to Israel. 
other religions had a sense of the fear of God, but it was more on the, the joyless terror end of things. And what God did with Israel is brought it to the joyful, confident end of things. He redefined the fear of God. He used the same term that people were using. And what God always does, he takes the things that we're used to and we know about, and then he does something new with them. Surprising. And that's what he did with the fear of God. So, for example, the yearly festivals, which were meant to be done in the fear of the Lord. Um, These festivals were basically big barbecues. They were feasts. They were meant to be celebrations of God's goodness um, throughout the year on a yearly basis. Sabbaths were a weekly celebration of God's goodness in creation and in the Exodus. These were, these were times that the Israelites were to be able to practice trembling with joy at the goodness of God, with who he is, with what he's done, and therefore what he's going to be able to do in the future for them. So what God did is he redefined the fear of God, the fear of the Lord. So here's the distinction. The fear of God was a general term. God, Elohim, that's a term that other nations could have used, an idea at least, where the Lord in capitals, that's the word for Yahweh. That's the unique name that God gave Israel to call him by. And it's basically translated as I am which is the abbreviation of God's full sentence name, I am who I am. But God didn't reveal the meaning of that name, really, until the Exodus. The Exodus revealed the meaning of God's name to the people of Israel. So, what is God's name and what does it mean? That's basically what Moses was asking in that moment at the burning bush. He wasn't just receiving that name for the first time. If you read the Bible, the name was already around. What he's asking, what does your name mean? And what is God going to do? It's like, just watch what I do in the Exodus. That's what it means. And it gives you the holy connotation of, I am who I am for you. When Paul is saying God is for us, he's mostly looking to Jesus. But he's, he's thinking about the whole story, about how God's revealed himself, especially in the Exodus and the Old Testament, primarily like the new Exodus with Jesus. So... Yes, the Israelites, they are supposed to be trembling with joy at God who he took them out of slavery. He took them out with a strong arm. He judged the oppressors. He took them through the wilderness. He brought them into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the kind of thing he does. And this is the kind of thing we can expect him to do in the future. He's the God, the great I am. He's the God of the Exodus. And now we know he's the God of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And it's this God who's with us and for us. And that should cause us to tremble with joy more than ever. So, the fear of God, it gets our attention for things like that. See, it brings our attention to what's most important. That kind of thing. connected to joy. It's connected to love. In normal fear, our fears reveal what we love. So if we're afraid, we're afraid 
um, because something we love or someone we love is threatened. So it's important to ask when we're afraid, what are we afraid of? Well, we're afraid of losing something. What is that? It's an important point for us to realize what's going on in our heart. It's actually a helpful thing to reveal the desires of our heart. Am I afraid of losing my reputation? The image I've tried to create for others? Am I afraid of losing my possessions, my money, control? Am I afraid of losing my life? Am I afraid of someone I love, I love losing their life? They might die. That's what fear does. It's connected. Um, and the fear of God is connected to the love of God. In fact, a lot of people argue that they are near synonyms in the Old Testament. And I wish I had more time to go through through different passages. I'm going to have to skip that one. But just look at this. This is Deuteronomy chapter 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord require, the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. So you see here, the fear of God and the love of God are not in contradiction. They're not opposed to each other, pitted against each other. They're listed here side by side with a list of all other kinds of expressions expressing devotion to God, ultimate devotion to God. They're synonyms. They're saying similar things to each other. And more than that, with the Um, In normal fear, we don't typically love the thing we fear, right? Typically, we fear one thing and we love something else. But with the fear of God, we're fearing and loving the same person. So the more attention you give to God, the more in awe of him you are, the more you respect him and honor him, the more you grow to love him, the more he becomes your first love, your greatest love. So he's not a threat to what you love. He's becoming your greatest love and your greatest hope for everything and everyone else you love. He's not the threat. Now, if we don't fear God again, if we are running from him, if we are an oppressor, uh, if we are living in wickedness and idolatry, then yeah, God becomes a threat because he's opposed to all that is evil. He's going to bring an end to idolatry and wickedness. Um, so yeah that is a a fearful place to be but we don't have to stay there of course we can always turn to him and find refuge in him all right we're coming close to the end some significant differences between fear and anxiety and the fear of the lord i forgot that part of the hymn but we'll move on um First, between fear and anxiety. Now, if, if you read any psychology or if you've been through therapy, you probably know the distinctions that are made there are typically fear is about a specific conscious object. Anxiety, some, a lot of times, doesn't have one. So <clears throat> if you take a walk in the forest, you see a crouching tiger, that's fear. If you take a walk in the forest and you feel like there's a crouching tiger, but there is no crouching tiger... That's anxiety. 
Now, I think in everyday language, fear and anxiety are almost the same thing. They get inter-exchanged, uh, they get used in the same way, and, and a lot of this lecture I've done the same thing. But in psychology and counseling, a lot of times that distinction is made between fear and anxiety. Well, what about the difference between fear and anxiety and the fear of the Lord? So, I've already mentioned, yeah, in normal fear, yeah, we don't love the thing we fear. We typically run from the thing we fear. But with the fear of God, we run to, draw near to the one we fear. That's the biggest difference, I think. It's not, we're not running away from God in fear. We're running toward him with fear and trembling. We're no longer anticipating something terrible. That's the definition of fear. But the fear of God is drawing near and anticipating something good from God. That's a big difference. He's our greatest hope. And this is the the foundation of our hope, is the fear of the Lord. So yeah, there's scary things in this world. We have plenty of reasons to fear. But the fear of God enables us to see there are better reasons to hope. And unless God is more awesome and overwhelming than the scariest thing on the planet... We don't have any hope. God is not our hope. But the fear of God says, no, God is the most fearful one of all. And he's good. And he's with us. And he's for us. (laughs) So you can expect, you can anticipate good things from him. Not terrible things. Because, yeah, the, the fear of God brings our attention to God, to his almighty power, to his overwhelming love, to what he's done in creation, to what he did in the exodus, to what he did in the cross and the resurrection. This is the kind of God we can trust and hope in and worship. In the Old Testament, we're told more than once that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I think how a lot of people understand that is, oh, the fear of Lord, it's like training wheels. You know, you start out with them on your bike, but at some point you throw them away and you get on to to bigger and better things. Well, actually, the more accurate translation would be the fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom, like the foundation of a house. When you build the foundation of a house, you don't build it and then at one point get rid of it. It's there the whole time. It's holding up the whole structure. And in fact, to the extent of your foundation, how strong it is, how wide it is, how secure it is, that will determine what you can build on top of it. So the stronger the fear of the Lord in our lives, the more we can build on top of that in our life with God, to that extent. So yes, it's going to enable us to to go out and live without being controlled by fear when we go to vote. 
on election day. It's going to keep us from being too fearful and stingy and mean. It's going to enable us to go out, to venture out with God, to be generous with the risks that that entails, being hospitable, welcoming the stranger. I love how, yeah, at Labrie, we have these incredible examples of people who have lived the fear of the Lord for us, the Schaefers, Dick and Marty. I mean, this is, we have people here who have paid attention to God, who have ventured out, risked, and, uh, and we hear their stories and they're inspiring and they're, they're why we do what we do here. <clears throat> I'm going to finish with this. I used to get spiritual direction from somebody and, uh, you know, I'm talking about Joshua and he used, he used to point out how my life, my work as a firefighter kind of resembles my work as a Labrie worker and also uh, a minister, an ordained minister sometimes. Well, I'm an ordained minister, but I don't always, uh, work in the church with that. Uh, but he says, yeah, Hey Dave, you go into literal fires and you also go into the metaphorical fires of people's lives. <laughs> Do you ever see that? And I was like, you're right. I never really put those two together. And yeah, those are scary places sometimes. Honestly, yeah. Uh, to go in there, you don't know what you're going to get into. But yeah, with firefighting, of course, with training and with uh, experience and with entrusting my life to God. I'm like, yeah, I can go in here. I'm not going to be controlled by fear. <clears throat> And the same with going into the fires of people's lives. It's like, man, yeah, with proper experience and reading and talking with my colleagues, praying, and then entrusting their lives to God. I can go in there and, uh, and trust God and know he's bigger than ever, anything I'm going to meet. But yeah, there's still situations for me where it's really difficult and I still get scared. Uh, so for example, entering into personal conflict with people, that's like a scary thing for me still. There's a lot of reasons behind that in my past, <clears throat> but there's times when I'd rather go into a burning building <laughs> than get into a personal conflict with somebody. That's how it feels. And so that for me is when the fear of God is so helpful because it reminds me of, oh no, wait, let me think of the most scary thing, whether it's imagined or whether it's real. Take it all the way to the end. God is still bigger. His love is still stronger. He's able to bring something good out of this. I'm going to trust him for that. <clears throat> so yeah, what's the worst that can happen? I could die. That's possible. But God is the God who raises the dead. So he's got that covered too. Uh, and he is with me. And he is for me. So yeah, first, I go to the foundation. Grace that taught my heart to fear. Then I receive the first fruits of that foundation. Grace, my fears relieved. And eventually the fullness of that foundation. Grace for everything else. I hope you've seen something of that. That's all I have prepared. Thank you for your patience, for your listening. You're welcome. So this is the time to ask questions.
to ask for clarifications or challenge what's been said, add other comments. Joshua. Uh, yeah, thank you, James. <coughs> um, I, I, I like how much is encapsulated in uh, running from and running towards. I thought that was very, very helpful. Um, as someone who's like a fight or flight sort of impulse, often it's just paralysis. Like if something gets <laughs> 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 Freeze. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't always run from things that I should. Um, <laughs> but I'm just curious sometimes, um, I just want to hear some, some of your thoughts. Um, you know, sometimes in our, it's hard to run to God uh, as well, either because we feel shame or guilt or inadequacy or pride. Or it just sort of feels like, I don't know, like, what's God really going to, you know, I don't know, God doesn't feel as tangible as, as those other things within us. And I'd just be curious to hear some of your, if the um, things to help out of the freeze, so to say, but, if, you know, not just the freeze of running away from something, but the freeze you can feel running towards, yeah. um, running towards God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess I would say it typically takes time with all of us. And so, like for my own Christian life, I, I, I wasn't very interested in God. And so the fear of God, it was a profound sense of the fear of God coming upon me and waking me up. There was an awakening to God's presence and his fearful presence in the sense of, whoa, he's no one to mess with. And he's the most important person. But I don't, I didn't have a lot of confidence in his character yet. I didn't know much about his goodness and why I didn't need to be afraid of him or run, run away from him. I had every reason actually to run to him. And so that took, for me, it took a long time of God addressing the things that I thought about God that were untrue or the things that I thought about myself that weren't true or that I just didn't know the gospel remedy for and so I guess it's as the answer that would be as complex as what each of us the baggage we're carrying the concept we have about God how accurate that is or not um, but typically I think yeah there's there's certain aspects like God's forgiveness his generosity his pursuing us there's there's these kinds of things that I think are very helpful for people and say, oh, God, God isn't going to zap me out of existence as I approach him. He's going to, he's going to welcome me in his son, of course, but <clears throat> am I answering your yeah, question? Yeah. I, I just wanted to hear more. I, I just hear from you. It's just, I, I, I really like, I quite like that phrase. I, I think I've heard you say it in conversation before or in something else before, but, yeah, I'm just thinking my own propensities to not run from things that I should run from and just be stuck, but also not run towards the things I should mm-hmm. run towards. Um, yeah. That, that seems freezing. So I just wanted to hear anything that came off, anything that was, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, certainly the Bible says, yeah, like flee from evil. and um, But not always flee from every danger. I mean, that's, yeah, sometimes mm-hmm. the Christian calls to go right into danger. And right into 
what might be bad for our health and our mental health. And so that's why it's hard. Like I, that's why I tried to say, yeah, um, mental health safety is a relative value, but it's not, it should never be an ultimate value. And so like I think of, yeah, Martin Luther King and, you know, a lot of what he, he subjected himself to psychological and physical harm to do what he did. And so, you know, maybe he got counsel and be like, look, this isn't good for you. <laughs> and it wasn't, you know, but sometimes we need to know when it's time to sacrifice something, um, to go into something that we would normally run from and go right into it. Um, and then other things we would run out into, like certain evil <laughs> we would run out into. And God says, no, flee from that. Flee to me. Yeah. <clears throat> the, you made a distinction that I've never, never occurred to me. But I just wonder if you see this throughout the scripture between fear of God and fear of the Lord. Fear of Elohim and fear of Yahweh. Yeah. Are those, do those really function as you trace them through? You implied that, that, that the fear of the Lord is much more the kind of thing that you've been uh, talking about as the confidence in the love of God, whereas the fear of the Lord was just somebody bigger than we are or something like that. Fear of God. Yeah, so far, fear, fear yeah. of God being, being just uh, Elohim, being something that any, anyone could be afraid of. Yeah. Dreading something awful to happen. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so I think in the scriptures they're pretty interchangeable a lot of the times. But um, but you do have moments like a God fear in like say Acts. Well that's not someone who was a Jew, that was somebody who had a sense of the creator. Maybe they knew something of Israel, but they weren't uh fully immersed in it. And so they didn't know about the covenants, they didn't know about the meaning of Yahweh. Um, but they had a sense of, oh yeah, the creator I'm supposed to respect his creatures, you know, like giving alms to the poor and uh, and making his prayers. But but the fear of Yahweh is more specific. That's what I've um, that's been my reading. And that yeah, the fear of God was kept in the Bible, but it was redefined by the fear of Yahweh mm-hmm. and and what God did, particularly for Israel. That was a unique revelation. Um, because, yeah, how else do we know God other than what he does and reveals in history what he says of himself? So, <clears throat> yeah, is that somewhat yeah, answering your so question? It's not a completely separate yeah. thing, but overlapping, but, but uh, fear of the Lord informs fear of God the more you commit to the covenant. Yep. <clears throat> ben? Yeah, I've just... Um, Continuing that in that question, so you were saying that uh, there's a concept in other ancient Near Eastern religions of fearing God. And was, was that more uh, the kind of the type of fear of just a, you know, self-preservation, where, where you appease you appease the God, do sacrifices, and things like that because you don't want bad things to happen to you? Um, was it, was that sort of the context of? of Biblical writers taking that idea and then sort of transforming God, transforming that idea into something more. Yeah, I don't know how conscious. Yeah, maybe the the biblical writers were. It seems like that's what God did. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it seems like there was 
there was no confidence in the other religions as far as the character of the gods and what they were, you know. But the, yeah, and the the sacrifices were more about manipulation and than about trust and obedience and and the gods actually giving the sacrifice. No, it was more like the people giving the sacrifices and hit or miss. But in Israel, it was God prescribing the sacrifice, but also, <clears throat> yeah, a marked rejoicing. Like that's what my recent reading on the fear of God, that's what they said marked Israel off from the other nations, that this fear of God was a rejoicing. And that wasn't, that wasn't going on in the other nations. There was nothing to rejoice about. It was, <laughs> it was mostly terror and a lack of certainty as to what the gods wanted and were going to do. Or you had to do really drastic things to get what you needed. <clears throat> but yeah, the, you weren't, you didn't have any confidence in their character <laughs> as you did with Yahweh. There's somebody on Facebook um, asking for you to repeat what you said about perfect love casting out fear, not meaning we should eventually stop fearing God. I think they might mean the um, training wheels. I just want to repeat that a little bit. Yes. It's not like perfect love casts out fear, meaning once our love gets big enough, we no longer have to fear the Lord. I think that's what they're asking you. Yeah, so... Well, the the training wheels illustration came from when I was talking about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Oh, yeah. That's said through yeah Proverbs and other places. <clears throat> and so the the meaning of that word is more like foundation. Mm-hmm. This is what I, in Tremper Lamin's book, the um, mm-hmm. the fear of the Lord, I think it's called. He he talks about that how it's more of a foundation, not not just something you start with like training wheels and then leave behind. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And it's certainly not left behind in the scriptures. I mean, especially you see Paul several times. He talks about the fear of the Lord, never dismissing it. I mean, he talks about we don't have a, a spirit of fear or cowardice, but that's fear, cowardice, period, not fear of the Lord. And so actually one of, um, I never got to this passage, but if you look at um, Isaiah chapter 11, <clears throat> this is a really powerful passage. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, I'm losing my voice. So this is a passage that's talking about basically the coming Messiah. And this is certainly what the New Testament understands Jesus as fulfilling. <clears throat> and this is what it says. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. So basically, in the line of Jesse, Jesse was King David's father, So basically, a son of David. From his root, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. So the the New Testament understood this as describing Jesus. So no one lived out the fear of the Lord more than Jesus. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is seems to be called here the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. Um, so you see that all the way through. 
And, uh, and I love that his delight is in the fear of the Lord. He, I, I'm, I've got a long way to go, I know, but I sense God doing that in me. That's mm-hmm. partly why I wanted to give this. I, I sense, I pray, I've been praying for all of you that the, that the delight and the fear of the Lord would grow in you. And, uh, that would be one of the best things to, to happen in us. <clears throat> um, for all that it brings. But, yeah, that's, What's interesting is Jesus barely ever talks about the fear of the Lord. <laughs> but just because a phrase or a word is not there doesn't mean the idea or the concept isn't there. I learned that in my Ricky Watts class uh, this summer in Isaiah. <laughs> um, but that's important to understand because, um, yeah, if you look at how Jesus related to the Father and if you look at how the fear of the Lord is described in the Old Testament, I mean... That's exactly what he was doing. He was he was fearing his father in the ways I was trying to describe, yeah. and more so. <clears throat> and in there's some way that the fear of the Lord is now also redefined around Jesus. So it's almost like we're now called to the fear of the Lord Jesus. And you look in the, the Gospels, and what do you see a lot of times? It's like, whoa, they were amazed. They were terrified. <laughs> they didn't know, what, who is this who can make the wind? You know, it's like... Whoa. And then, you know, the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament is all about fear the Lord and obey his commandments. And what does Jesus say? He says, you know, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> the one who built his, his house on a rock is the one who hears my words and obeys them. And that house won't go anywhere. But if you hear them and you don't do them, you're on the sand. You have no foundation. But you see him redefining the fear of the Lord, I think, around himself. Um, and rightly so, if he's the great I am in the flesh, then uh, we turn that fear to him. But I think that also shows <clears throat> with, we don't necessarily always need to hold on to, to the phrase, the fear of God. I know you say fear right now for a lot of people, and that's just an automatic, I'm just going somewhere else. You just disinterested me. Um, and so I think Jesus was talking about promoting the fear of God without ever using the phrase. Um, so I think we can do that too. I don't think we need to be stuck with this one phrase. There's other ways of talking about it. Um, I know, uh, I can't remember who it was. Some people try to say instead of the fear of God, we should talk about the awe of God. Um, and that could be helpful. I don't think it captures as much. It's not as strong. We use awe very loosely now. Everything's awesome. Like, this doesn't mean anything anymore. So, I, yeah, I'm, I've wanted to, to use that phrase, but not, yeah, I'm not sure which to use anymore. Ben? Where, where is it that Jesus says, uh, <clears throat> if you love me, you'll keep my commandments? It's in John. Yeah. There's yeah. yeah. another connection there, too, between like, the fear of God in the Old Testament has to do with keeping his commandments, and Jesus reframing it as, if you, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. He's really talking about the same thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, fearing God and loving God both result in obedience. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and there's new phrases that are like catchphrases for our spiritual life with God or with Jesus. So like in the, a lot of the synoptics, it's disciples, students of Jesus. That kind of sums up life with Jesus a lot. In Paul, it's in Christ. I mean, that's kind of his phrase for all that it means to be a Christian. 
is to be in Christ. You know, so I think a lot of, yeah, depending on who's writing or talking, you have these different catchphrases that, you know, we can make use of. We can draw from all different kinds of phrases. Um, but I, but at the same time, the fear of the Lord is promoted in Paul. I mean, he, he doesn't shy away with it. He uses it. Even Revelation uses it. Um, so we can use it too. But, <laughs> yeah, but you did quote, uh, I couldn't say, see the designation, but it was in, I think it was Luke 12, where it says, fear God, and then you don't have to fear anything else. In Jesus' teaching. It's yeah, isn't as if the teaching doesn't occur in Jesus. Yes, but uh, there, and uh, I don't know if he says it anywhere else. Yeah. But that's, that's yeah. a really, very formative uh, statement there. And it's and very similar to, yeah, I think the old, like to the Sinai passage. Yeah. It's almost like he just switched it, because the Sinai was, um, don't fear, fear him. And Jesus switched it, fear him, don't fear like it's the exact wording. And, and yeah. it, it strikes me as well, or struck me, all thinking about the fear of God, is that it's fearing God or fearing the Lord. He is, he's also our creator, which means that if we fear him, and I think you see this a lot in the wisdom literature, if we fear him, our life will be ordered in the way that it's meant to be ordered. Mm-hmm. In other words, the fear of him frickles down into everything, uh, because of who he is, mm-hmm. who, who he is, and they're relating to, and so you, Augustine's whole idea of a, of a life ordered, uh, ordered desires, ordered thoughts. And to me, the fear of the Lord, it may be focusing on the Lord, but as, if it's happening, it will be ordering your life. It will be putting priorities in the right places. And yeah. So yep. And one of one of the things I, <laughs> having done some rock climbing. Uh, to me, the fear of the Lord is a little bit like a massive cliff. Yeah. And you can be quite safe, even at the top of it, if you're tied in, say, or something else. <laughs> but there's something that takes your breath away, yeah. if you have any sense in your head at all. Yeah. Uh, or at the top of it, or at the bottom looking up. There's something absolutely fearful uh, that, that's, that's connected with danger. Yeah. Uh, but you know you're not at risk. Yeah. Uh, in the same way, so I, I, it's, it, it gets, gets at the, the, the the more traditional meaning of the word fear. I think so. So that's yeah. not a wasted. No, idea. I, yeah, that's why there is there are real connections. Yeah. It's not totally disconnected. I mean, yeah, I, I I have that same sense. I remember being at the Dom de Midi. That's, yeah, I made it to the top, and you know, and as someone who deals with the fear of heights, it was really you know whoa, <laughs> but it was also breathtaking. And um, so, yeah, that that blend, I think, is something of the fear of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Marty? Yeah, I was, it was just occurring to me um, a, a sort of a, example in Israelite history where I can imagine, if I imagine myself an Israelite standing at the Red Sea with um, terrified of Pharaoh's army that's chasing me, and then Moses says, step in the water, and it's, Schaefer always made the point, it's before the water had <laughs> you had to get your feet wet. The same thing with jo- with Joshua and crossing the Jordan. It was you had to get your feet wet. And so fear of fear of that fear of crossing you know, go going into the water, not yeah. knowing 
that God was going, or not knowing how God was going to save you and rescue you. And yet, the, and that, but then the experience of actually doing it and having the walls of water stand up on either side and you actually going through through safely and Pharaoh's army behind you actually is drowning, yeah. which has been so unbelievable um, in terms of uh, real fear, fear of God, because it's this incredible power. Yeah. And yet, joy and thanksgiving. And then, of course, it became the paradigm of salvation that they, the Jews looked back on forever. Yeah. That um, actually, that African Americans looked back. Yeah. <laughs> looked back to for their redemption. But yeah. It just, you know, fear on all sides, terror of Pharaoh, but but knowing that the fear of God, you were fearing someone who's all powerful but good. Yeah. And who this was salvation. Yep. But you'd still be scared. Yeah. I think that's important. Like I want, my guess is that, yeah, when we're told do not fear, um, it's not a command to never feel fear, Mm -hmm. but to not live in fear, Mm -hmm. to not be afraid, to not live in its grip, its control, but to have other things controlling us. Um, so that, yeah, I would, this would be pretty scary just like walking through before you step and as you step. I mean, yeah, water everywhere. I mean, I would be freaky. I'm sure I'd be sweating. And <laughs> even if I'm trusting God more, still. Or like, yeah, I imagine, you know, if I was to get tortured and I could, tr- I'm going to trust God to take care of me eventually and raise me from the dead, but mm. I'm still going to, f- still going to be afraid of getting hurt. I'm not, you know, I don't know if God asks me to not feel that or you know I think it's more I'm not going to be controlled by that fear Uh, it's not going to dominate my life it's not going to keep me from practicing generosity or hospitality doing the right thing Um, so that's why this book um, can I read a comment from Maddie that's really in line yeah she said our feelings of anxiety and fear are valid but they are often not reliable I have found that in times of my greatest anxiety most of the time based on irrational thoughts or lies that I must trust God's word, his truth more than my own feelings. Fear of the Lord stems from knowing and trusting in God as our creator. He knows me better than I know myself. So believing him more than I trust in my emotions has been so important in my journey through the valley of the shadow. Hmm. I was thinking how much it related to, yeah, they're valid, but they're not often reliable. (laughs) That sounds good. Yeah. Yeah, he uh this guy I don't know if anybody's heard of this book. Um I brought it. Yes, here it is. It's got the worst cover in the history of the world, but um Following Jesus in a Culture of Fear. Scott Bader Sai. I don't know if anybody's heard of him, but he uh He's helpful because he he helps he he helped me at least see oh I don't have to wait till I'm not fear like feeling fear to obey God's commands I can venture out I might be trembling but um, I'm still trusting God in this and <clears throat> I think a lot of people get the sense of if I feel afraid in any degree I must be sinning I must be not doing what God wants me to do, and I don't know if that's helpful. I don't know if Jesus is saying to us, 
commanding us not to feel a certain way. <laughs> I think he's commanding us not to live a certain way. To do, to, we're, we can only be in control of what, what's controllable. We can't always control our emotions directly. <clears throat> we can feel them, we can pay attention to what they're saying, but our decisions don't have to be fearful. And so I, that was that was helpful for me. And he was saying, you know, a lot of times, yeah, we we look at some of the the side effects of fear. And he says, but for Christians, <clears throat> it's um, it's when it keeps us from being generous and from loving the stranger. That's when fear's at its worst. Mm-hmm. Um, when we just see strangers mm-hmm. as enemies. Mm-hmm. And I mean, of course, right now it's like the political thing and like if there's somebody on the other side of the political spectrum they're the enemy to be feared and um and i'm ready to attack them and so i i think yeah he's got a lot of helpful words in that you some of you probably familiar with this there's a wonderful quote by martin luther during um the plague which i've seen in reference to this pandemic and he talks about um how he's I, I will not be able to do it justice, but being being careful to avoid the plague and you know, protecting himself, protecting his family, etc. But um, it not fear fear of the plague not keeping him from um, meeting his neighbor's need, mm-hmm. uh, responding to a neighbor in need, responding to, to human need, and then it's basically trusting God. With that, yeah. you know, so it's not being. But I thought it's, it's very. It's a very relevant quote to mm-hmm. what we're called to today, which is to not not be foolish, not yeah. be foolhardy, not not get together in large groups and sing, <laughs> as if that's being faithful to God. When we when we know the science has told us what what happens, we do that, and yet not being so so driven by fear yeah. of this pandemic that we refuse to be hospitable, refuse to. Um, you know, pull back from mm-hmm. faithfulness, and and Luther, I think, and saying, and, and and if that's you know, if I die, will I die? But yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, it's a wonderful balance, and I'm sure you probably know that quote, but I can't remember it. Remember I don't know if I know really, it, but uh, it's, it's a wonderful. <clears throat> yeah, balance. I think that's the hard. Yeah, not being too safe or too reckless. Yeah, yeah that's uh, mm-hmm. that's hard to know. Yeah. Um, I know that was, yeah, I mean, with the pandemic, I know when I was um, doing the the short interim at our church, filling in for our church when they needed it, I was hearing all the other pastors and <clears throat> when it was first starting. And the, and the struggle was, the debate was, well, we shouldn't be afraid of the, of the pandemic because we're not afraid of death. And so we should, we shouldn't stop anything. And then the other argument was, well, we're not, it's not just about our own life. It's about other people's lives. So that's the trick here is like, it's, I could be endangering somebody else. So it, that makes it really hard. Yeah. I mean, I, I hate that. Yeah. I really don't like that. Um, cause I'd rather it be just like me and like, well, if it's my only risking my life, well, I'm ready to do that, but I don't know how much I should be willing to risk somebody else's life. And <laughs> I don't even know how much that's happening when I, you know, when, when we're doing what we're doing. But Calvin's Geneva, they <coughs> debate over this when they when they had a plague in Geneva. Really? Should the ministers be the ones to visit, or should their lives be kept precious uh, because they are the leaders and they are to 
they got to be teaching there, they shouldn't risk their lives this way. And they went both ways. It was a, I forget where it started, but I think I think they were they protected themselves first, and then I think they did less. And once them died off, and there was major discussion. There's probably some that's published of what they what they, what they were saying about it, how they wow. how they dealt with it. But it was it was a, a real debate. A high death rate. Obviously, you get it. You really it was the bubonic plague, and it was not much more uh, deadly than. This yeah. Hmm. Well, one or one more question. Maybe. You're, well, what time is it? Winter. So uh, earlier on one of your slides, um, you had a bunch of words underneath the umbrella term, um, being the Lord, like you know, being obedient yeah. to the Lord, and um, you know, having like a respect. To the Lord, and mm-hmm. I was curious what you thought about, especially the last one, res- having respect of the Lord. Yeah. Like under that umbrella of fearing the Lord, not because you know, yes, exact fear that you know, he's uh, you know, he just like snap us out like that, but also like you know that loving respect and that loving fear. So in like a culture where the cliche is like you know nothing is sacred, and yeah. so desensitized and stuff. Like, how should we as Christians um, live out that respect, especially for stuff that we think, like, is no big deal? Like, you know, uh, like making jokes about God or jokes about, you know, church-related things. Like, how should that apply to us? Or, like, how should we live that out? Mm-hmm. Like, fearing the Lord in that aspect, like, for respect. Yeah. Because um, I read a book. I was talking to Ben up to really. I read this book a while ago. It was called uh, It Was Good Omens by Neil Gaiman. And uh, it's a secular book, but it's about um, kind of like a satire of like um, angels and demons. And uh, it was like a few years ago I read it. And now it's kind of like considering, like, well, as a Christian who, you know, I have a fear of the Lord, should I out of my love and respect for him, should I, like, stay away from that, or should I, like, no? So it's just, like, how to practically respect the Lord. And we're so used to, you know, everything's on the table when it comes to joking. Yeah. Or, or you know. Yeah. I think you said it really well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think there is, I think there is a lack of respect, yeah, amongst a lot of Christians that I meet. <clears throat> um, yeah, like, I, when you see these gatherings, like these church gatherings, and like people just kind of draw up with like coffee in their hand, and they're just like cool. And it's like, where's the fear of God in that? I don't. Yeah, this just seems like this this over casual approach to God. It just that rubs me the wrong way. I just don't think they have a sense of the fear of God, and it's not like again you need to be in terror about God, but but you know. Think about who he is. What what are, you, what are we doing here? Like, I, who was it who said, you know, when we go to church, we should be wearing crash helmets? <laughs> Annie Dillard, yeah. <laughs> I was like, we need more of that sense. Like, where, yeah, like, who are we dealing with? It's powerful, yeah. Do you remember? She's, I could never give it to you, but she's she's trashing exactly this flippancy yeah. and, and no fear of God. Yep. When we go to God's courts, we should be wearing crash helmets. 
Yeah. <laughs> Not knowing what will happen to us. Yeah. But there's also like, you know, that spectrum from like growing up in California and going like California youth groups. Like it's, it sometimes would be like way, like way back and like, you know, even like as a younger kid, I was like, but then yeah, like, it was a California younger kid. <laughs> <laughs> but then like there's a total opposite side of the spectrum where it's like uh, you know, if you go back, um, you know, even in just the early twentieth century and it's like if you go in a church without a hat, like everyone just you know, just like scowl at you because you're not showing respect. The Lord says like where do you find the balance between yeah, it's hard to know what what's a fear of the Lord and what's a fear of a tradition, you know, human made up thing. And it's like, well, hats. Well, I know Paul says things about hat or head coverings, but I, yeah, I think a lot. Sometimes a lot of these things in some like very legalistic churches is not about fearing the Lord necessarily. It's about fearing some men who made some rules <laughs> and who are trying to keep enforcing them. Uh, yeah, I think it just kind of depends on the person that's respectful. And, I mean, if I wear a suit and tie to church, that can be a sign of respect to God. I'm going to come with my Sunday best on, you know, make sure I'm, you know, looking good just as a way to, like, you know, show that respect. I'm going to be very, you know, that helps me be attentive when I have, you know, that shirt tie on. But for other people, that may not that may not work because like a homeless person off the street maybe is intimidated if they're coming to church when he sees all these suits and ties there as well too and so they want to make it informal just try to make it as welcoming as possible to a homeless person or to a non-Christian or whoever so I think you know it just can depend on the circumstance depend on the person and the situation Yeah, Marty. Yeah, just along those lines, uh, I'm just thinking of, of um, it's, our, it's, our, it's about our attitudes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and the book of James is just brutal on um, being a respecter of persons. So, you know, he said, so it's, it, maybe you're in a suit and tie, and some of the homeless person comes in, and, or somebody in rags, and, and James is saying, you're, you know, you're, you're a hypocrite, you're a respecter of persons. If you tell the, the, the rich man who's dressed well, you know, sit in this place of honor and mm-hmm. tell the poor man who's in rags, sit on the floor here. And he, he just reams them out. So, obviously welcome. Um, I mean, it's going to be, we're going to have different, it's going to be very different cultural settings mm-hmm. of what's sort of appropriate dress or not and, and so on. But there, there should always be a, a respect and a and the love and uh, hospitality for whoever comes and not judging them by that. I mean, I just, just think of think of a friend of, um, a good friend of Ben's, and we, we know her as well, who, who was, was really searching. She was wondering, decided to go to a church searching, and she went in in jeans or something. Um, at any rate, somebody, somebody, one of the ushers just blasted her for showing such disrespect for God. And she never went back to church and she became a Buddhist. And it was just, just an absolute turn off to be treated mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. yeah. 
Ben. Just to go back to your original question about there's so many opportunities to get bogged down in, in what are trivialities ultimately. Mm-hmm. And that's what legalism does. And it sort of like misses, misses the point, I guess, and makes your Christian life all about the, all about the rules that you, you obey or don't obey, and um, which makes it very manageable in a sense. You can do it, right? And, uh, but if it was Shakespeare or not, but who said um, you can tell a person's character by what they laugh at. Mm. I was like, whew, that was, yeah, yeah. convicting. But um, I think there's, yeah, a lot of truth in it. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, yeah I'm, I'm actually, you know, I don't, it's hard to know how to take all humor, but um, a lot of humor is about, like, what's going on in us immorally. Like, mm-hmm. like especially how we fear people. Like how we care so much about what people think of us, so much humor is based around that, and it's like in the and the Bible doesn't really laugh about that. <laughs> it's more that's a big problem. Like you shouldn't be caught up in that. So you need to repent of that. You need forgiveness. Uh, that should not be. But yeah. Maddie shared a quote. She said, "I heard a quote once. I will not entertain myself with the things that nailed Christ to the cross." That has had a pretty big impact on what I decided to read and watch from that day on. Hmm. Wow. Well, maybe we'll we'll finish with that. 
Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.